Good morning. How you doing today? Good morning. That, I like that song. It makes me wake up a little bit. That's a good thing. Hey, today we're kicking off a new series that's focused on the life of a man that many, if not all of us, are familiar with in some way, shape, or form. And chances are, when you hear his name, you already know some stories or some details about his life, even if you've never picked up a Bible. His name is David, and many biblical scholars would argue that he's one of the most significant figures found all throughout Scripture. However, the writers of Time Magazine would go one step further, because in December of 2013, Time published an article that set out to rank the 100 most significant figures in world history. And in this article, this is what they write. They, they set out to explain, or uh, their goal was to rank historical figures using a diverse set of measurements that calculate the reputation of a single, and, and to a cons- easy for me to say. Let me go back and tell you what Time Magazine said again. Their goal was to set out to rank historical figures using a diverse set of measurements that calculate their reputation into a single consensus value. Obviously, I don't even know what that means. I can't say it. I think what it means is that they use some pretty complicated formulas and algorithms to make sure that the list was legit. And as it turns out, the final list was compiled of philosophers and major religious figures, a handful of scientists and inventors, world-renowned artists, as well as music and literary giants. And as you may have guessed, our boy David made the list. He came in at a respectable number 57, just a few spots behind Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe. I kind of laugh at that. I think he deserves to be a little higher. Some of us may be thinking, eh, why is he on the list in the first place? But then maybe some of us are saying, well, who is this guy in the first place? I don't even know anything about David. So just in case you don't know anything about David, let me tell you a little bit about him. He lived 3,000 years ago, right around 1,000 BC. And for what it's worth, from a biblical perspective and from a Jewish historical view, many would say he's the greatest king that ever reigned over the nation of Israel. And God made a promise to him that one of his great-great-grandchildren would not only be a king, but would be the king of kings, the Messiah. And for what it's worth, most of the Old Testament is kind of the story of his family, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then one thing that David could put on his resume is that he is credited with writing most, the majority of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. That's a pretty impressive resume, right? So I don't know about you, but when I think about a guy like David and accomplishments and a life like that, I just think I really don't have a lot in common with with a guy like this, right? I mean, I'm gonna guess, how many of you have a royal lineage in your family? Yeah, me neither. How many of you have ever had God appear to you to promise that one of your great-great-grandchildren would come and save us from the mess in this world? Yeah, me neither, right? So what do people like us have in common with a guy like David? Well, even though it's easy to sit back after 3,000 years and to think that his life was really glamorous, the reality was that his life included a lot of chaotic circumstances, and some of them were just downright humiliating. As it turns out, we have good evidence that his dad and his brothers didn't respect him. And then it didn't get a lot better when David had a family of his own because he kind of blew his life up when he had an affair. And then there was a time that one of his sons raped one of his daughters, And another son came and killed that son. And then that son would later try to kill David and stage a coup to overthrow him so he could become king. Now, I don't know what your family life is like. That's pretty rough, right? But then David had work trouble as well. David worked for a guy that tried to kill him 
on numerous occasions. He personally tried to kill him. That's a pretty rough work environment. And then in the middle of all of that, he spent a lot of years on the run from his own people. He had to make friends with enemies just so he could survive. So just in case you're wondering, even Israel's greatest king spent the vast majority of his days dealing with chaotic circumstances that forced him to live most of his life on the run, just trying to survive from one day to the next. Now, as I've studied David personally over the last several weeks, I think it's kind of ironic that time said he's number 57 on their list because when you meet him on the pages of scripture, he is an afterthought to his own dad. His dad forgot about him, which kind of is a pretty good indication that nobody really expected him to make much of his life. So we're gonna go through his story today and we're gonna find him on the pages of 1 Samuel 16. So if you wanna turn there with me in a Bible or a Bible app or in a Bible's around the room, this is on page 196. But while you're turning there, let me give you a little history about what was going on in the nation of Israel so you can appreciate the world that David was living in. Several years before we meet David, the nation of Israel decided that they wanted to be like all the other nations around them and they wanted a king to rule over them. And God went along with this plan and God chose a man named Saul to be their king. Now, the one thing that Saul had going for him was that he was tall and handsome. And right away, I know who you picture, Ben Krause at our Noblesville campus, right? Long flowing, well, Ben doesn't have hair, Never mind. Well, actually, Saul was taller for sure and way more handsome than even our very own Ben Krause. But here's the point behind that. Saul just looked like the kind of guy that you would want to be your king. He just looked like a king. But there's a problem. Saul had no heart for God. And time and time again, he would willingly disobey God to the point that God decided it's time for you to not be king anymore. I'm going to replace you. And so God begins to speak to a prophet named Samuel to, to go on a mission to find and anoint the next king for Israel. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16, verse one. This is what we, we read. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now, there's a couple of really important things to point out here. For starters, Samuel had been a mentor to Saul in a lot of ways. And so you can imagine he was kind of heartbroken that all this was going down. In fact, you'll notice we've got the word mourn bolded on the screen. The word literally translated there means to mourn for the dead. He probably felt like a failure as a mentor for his friend Saul. But in spite of that, God assured Samuel that he had everything under control and he sends him to this little town in Judah called Bethlehem to the house of a man named Jesse. And the rest of the verse says, I want you to fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, I don't know about you. I would probably be a little unsure about that, right? Even if God spoke to me, I'd be a little hesitant. And apparently Samuel was too. Look at what he says in verse two. How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Now, Samuel had a really important role. He was the judge in the prophet in Israel. So he had the freedom and the right to travel around the land and to visit with people. But no one knew King Saul better than Samuel. And he knew that he was suspicious. He knew he was untrusting. He knew that he was insecure. And he also knew that Saul knew that his time as king was limited and he was being watched. And so he was anxious to go and do anything that might put his life in danger 
But again, thankfully for Samuel, God had it all mapped out. Look at what God says in verse three. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. In other words, God says, Samuel, I've got everything under control. I just need you to obey me and to trust me. And so he goes. Look at verse four. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him and they asked, do you come in peace? Now, elders here are referring to an older group of men and their role was to lead and protect the city. And right away, they sensed that something was up when Samuel shows up. They had heard that there had been a falling out between Samuel the prophet and Saul the king, and so they start asking some really good questions. Like, why is he here? Has he come to recruit us to lead a coup against the king? Does the king know that he's here? Because if he finds out, we're gonna be in trouble. In other words, do you come in peace? And look at how Samuel replies in verse five. Yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel obeys. He assures everybody, I've come in peace. I'm gonna invite you to this really special sacrifice. And he tells them to consecrate themselves. Now, basically what he is saying is, I want you to go take a bath and I want you to put on some clean clothes. And then he extends a personal invitation to this man named Jesse to invite all of his sons to be there. This would have been a tremendous honor for them to be there. Now remember, Samuel is the only person that knows why he's in town. Everybody else thought that he had come to pick a fight. He says, no, 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 no. I'm just here to offer a sacrifice. But he knows God has sent him on a mission to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And finally, at some point, Jesse, Jesse shows up at this sacrifice with seven sons. Now, if you're Samuel, I'm, I'm like, oh gosh, I gotta be on my game here. There's like seven of these guys to choose from. Which one is it, God? And look at what happens in verse six. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, this is the oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we don't know anything about Jesse's oldest son. He must have been pretty impressive physically, but God is very quick to remind Samuel, hey, I don't care what he looks like. I care about his character. And as it turns out, the same thing happened with the next son and the next son until all seven of Jesse's sons have passed in front of Samuel. Now, imagine for a moment that you're Samuel. God told you to throw this party with these people in this place, and your job is to choose which one or to anoint the one that's gonna be king. And meanwhile, everybody's a little anxious that you're in town, and all the while, you're having a private conversation with God about which one of these boys you're supposed to be paying attention to, right? And every time one of them passes in front of you, God says, nope, nope, next, nope, uh-uh, nope, nope. And if I'm Samuel, I'm like, oh, God, come on. Could it get any harder than this, God? Help me out a little bit. And I love his response to Jesse in verse 11. He says, are these all the sons that you have? Now, what kind of question is that to a dad, right? You told him to invite all of his boys. What kind of dad wouldn't invite all of his sons to this special banquet? 
Well, apparently a guy like Jesse, look at what he says. Well, they're still the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. Now, I just picture Samuel kind of cocking his head with that, come on, bro, look. And he's like, look what he says. Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. It just got really awkward in the room, right? So picture the scene. Political tensions are high. And imagine you're Jesse. This prophet has told you, I want you to invite all your boys to this special feast and you get called out for forgetting one of them. You talk about a major dad fail. All the town elders are there. They're like, who is this joker? Let's kick this guy out of town. Now, I can actually relate to this story in a very unique way. I ran cross country in high school, and every day my dad would pick me up around five o'clock unless he worked overtime. One day it was like 6.10, and I thought, oh, I guess my dad worked overtime. I'm gonna call. So I went to a payphone. Kids, if you don't know what that was, ask your parents. I went over to a payphone, put in a quarter, and I called home expecting to get my mom on the phone. You know who answered? My dad. Hello? Uh, hey, dad, it's Jerry. I'm at school. You forgot me. This is verbatim. Oh, I'm sorry. We're eating dinner. I'll come get you in an hour and a half. <laughs> we ate family dinner together every night, Okay. No one noticed that I wasn't there. And I had to wait for brother, my brother's basketball practice. So I can kind of, I kind of feel the tension here. Now this is my, this week is my dad's birthday. And I called him and said, dad, I love you. My present for you is I'm going to share that story with people at my church. <laughs> Happy birthday. We laughed. I've, I think I've forgiven him. Now that I've told that story, I can forgive him. Now, not only did Jesse forget about his son, did you notice he doesn't even mention him by name? He's just the youngest son. And if you haven't guessed it by now, guess who it is? It's number 57 on Time Magazine's list of history's most influential people. And not only that, but Samuel calls Jesse out for this oversight, and he makes it clear that ain't nobody gonna eat anything until that boy shows up. So look at verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health. He had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took a horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. We finally met him. We know his name is David. And one verse before this, we learned that he's a shepherd in a field. Now I want you to imagine for a moment you're David, the youngest of eight boys. You're a shepherd in the middle of a field. You have no idea what's going on back at home when suddenly one of the servants comes running and says, hey, David, hey, David, your dad wants to see you right now. It's important. Come quick. Come on. And so David does the best he can do to hustle home. And when you walk in, just picture this scene. You walk in and you start to notice some really important things. First of all, in that crammed little living room, there's the prophet of Israel. Something special is going on. All the elders are there. Your dad is there and all of your brothers. On top of that, they've all taken a shower and have on fresh clothes. You've been in a field. You smell like sheep. You stink. I'm a little self-conscious if I'm David. I'm like, uh, what, what is happening? And while David's trying to process all of that, I just want you to picture this scene. This old man, Samuel, hobbles across the room and he's got this horn of oil. He hobbles over and he starts pouring all of that oil on David's head and it drips down his hair and it starts to run down his neck. And while the text doesn't tell us that Samuel told David what was happening, later 
the Jewish historian Josephus would write these words. Samuel the aged whispered in David's ear the meaning of this symbol. You will be the next king. Can you imagine being David? Can you imagine trying to figure out what is going on and why is this happening and why is there oil all over me? Now that's a lot to process. In biblical imagery, oil represented the Holy Spirit and his endowment of, the endowment of his power on his servants. And throughout scripture, there were only three types of people that were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. And on top of that, the person doing the anointing had to be authorized by God himself. Now, I want you to go back to that little living room in Bethlehem. Everyone knew who Samuel was, the prophet and judge of Israel. If anybody was gonna anoint anybody, it was gonna be Samuel. And while nobody else in the room might not have understood, well, it was hard to understand what was going on, there was no doubt something special had just taken place. In fact, look back at what verse 13 says. After he's anointed, it says, and from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, the forgotten son, the nobody that nobody noticed. Now that's really important. That is gonna set the scene for the rest of David's life, no matter what happens. Now I've been spending some time trying to research how old David would have been when all of this took place. Josephus says he was probably around 10 years old, more modern commentators say that he was probably closer to 15 years old. But either way, 10 or 15, you're pretty young to learn that God has chosen you to be the king over your people. Can you imagine what you would have done at 10 or 15 or if one of your kids at 10 or 15 was told they were gonna be king? I mean, what do you do? How do you respond to that? Well, in our day and age, it's really simple, right? You get your phone or your parents' phone and you take a selfie with Samuel and you tweet it out to let the world know something big just happened. And then you start scheduling interviews and, and you craft a social media campaign to build up your base of followers, right? Because the world needs to know you're somebody special. I mean, that's what, that's what happens in our world. So here's the question. Well, what would David do? Well, this is why I love the details found in scripture. Because if you keep reading the story, you found out exactly what he did and where he went. But here's the thing, you gotta know the rest of the story to really appreciate all that's taken place. In verses 14 through 17, we learned that the king was starting to be tormented by an evil spirit. And one of Saul's attendants said, hey, look, I think this is spiritual warfare. Why don't we hire somebody that can play music to soothe your soul when you're tormented? And Saul agreed. And he sent his attendants to find someone that could play music for him. But one of his servants said this in verse 18. I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and he's fine looking. And the Lord is with him. Now we have no idea how much time passed between when David was anointed and when Saul was being tormented. But here's what we do know. David's reputation preceded him. People knew that he was a skilled musician and a brave warrior. But did you catch the last thing that the servant said about David? He said, the Lord is with him. And even though his family saw him as the run of the litter, even though he was forgotten about by his dad, apparently there was something about David that stood out to people that were watching him from a distance. And so look what happens next in verse 19. Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. 
Where did he go? He had been anointed to be king. Isn't that fascinating? He knew what the future held because God had promised it. But he went back to the middle of the field, watching over those few sheep. Now, that's not normal. Who does that? I mean, we're all looking for promotions. We're looking for ladders to climb. We want to get out of town. We want to do what we want to do. And wouldn't David have bigger and better things to worry about than some sheep? Can't somebody else do that? And this is what stood out to me as I've been studying David's life recently. Apparently, at some point in his young life, he had discovered an important truth that I need to be reminded of a lot. And I think we would probably all do. God not only determines our callings, but he's also in control of the timing of the things that he wants to have happen in our life. Not only does he determine our calling, what we will do with our days, but he's in control of of when all that stuff's gonna happen. And even though David had been informed he would be the next king, the reality was that Saul was still king. And so to his credit, even though he had been anointed and appointed, David didn't start chasing a title or a position that wasn't officially his yet. Instead, he continued running after God right where he was. And for him, that meant that he was gonna be faithful with a few sheep in the middle of a field until God told him otherwise. Now, I want you to take a moment and imagine you're David and all that's happened to you. What would you pray? I mean, I would just ask lots of questions. How in the world am I gonna be king? I, don't even, I barely can lead these sheep. Why would you choose me? My dad forgets about me. When's all this gonna happen? I don't know what David prayed, but I can't help but imagine at some point he would just pray this simple prayer based on what we see modeled in his life. Lord, this was your idea, so I trust that you're gonna make it happen when the time is right. I just have to believe at some point David prayed a prayer like that. And look at verse 21. Look what happens next. David came to Saul and he entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. Now that's a pretty crazy turn of events. One day he's a shepherd in a field. The next day the king hires him to be his intern to play music for him. And he goes on to get a promotion to be an armor bearer, right? I mean, what a crazy turn of events. And for the next several years, he was gonna have a front row seat to see how to be king and to learn from a guy that wasn't doing a very good job. Now, if you've ever been an intern before, you know that internships aren't very glamorous, right? Typically, the best day of an internship is the last day when people start to respect you because they've disrespected you the whole time that you've been there. And I just look at this. This was an internship for David. And here's the thing. I think it was a long and difficult internship. Many commentators believe that 15 years would pass from the time he was anointed to the time he actually became king over all of Israel. 15 years. God made an incredible promise and he had to wait a long time. But on top of that, during that time, Saul became insanely jealous of David. He attempted to kill him on numerous occasions. And when that didn't work, he enlisted Israel's entire army to go on a nationwide manhunt to hunt David down and to take him out. Now, I want you to imagine being David in the middle of all that madness. My prayers would get real whiny real quick. 
God, why is this happening to me? Are you mad at me? Did I do something wrong? If so, I'm sorry. P.S. Remembered, you made a promise to me. I mean, that's how I would pray. But again, I, I don't know this, but I just can't help but wonder if David didn't just say, maybe through gritted teeth, oh, I trust you. I trust you're gonna keep your word. I trust you're gonna keep me safe. And I trust that when the time is right, you're gonna keep your promise. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but this part of David's life, I can relate to. I don't think that I've ever had a boss that's tried to kill me, at least to my knowledge. I escaped that one, right? But it's the everyday chaos stuff that we're gonna find in David's life time and time again. I mean, can you feel that? Do you ever find yourself living life thinking there has got to be more to life than this? I did not plan life to go this way. Why is this so hard? Nothing seems to be going my way. Why is this happening to me? And how long is this going to last? I think David felt that way. Maybe you can relate to David's relational challenges. You feel overlooked or forgotten by a spouse or a friend or a family member. And you just find yourself saying, what, what did I do to deserve this? What did I ever do to them? Or maybe you can relate to David's trouble at work. You used to like what you do, but now it's just a job and you just went out. Or you're overwhelmed with the impossible challenge of keeping your boss happy. Or maybe you're the boss and you've got all these people that are going in all these different directions and you don't know what to do. Maybe you're hunting for a new job while trying to maintain the one you have, or maybe you've been without a job for a while and you just want a job so you can eat and live indoors and you, you're saying, why, why is this happening to me? How long is this gonna last? I don't know how much more of this I can take. Maybe you're single and you've been praying for a spouse for a long time and you just think maybe God's forgotten you and you're like, is there something wrong with me? Is there something I don't know about? Maybe you're dying to be a parent but God just keeps saying no or wait. And you just can't help but thinking, why is this, why, why me? What did I do? Maybe you've got a financial nightmare. You're scraping, always scraping to get by. And life is just hard. And everybody else seems to have everything that you don't have or want. You just, you just want the simple things and you just think, will things ever get better? Will things ever be different? I think if you can relate to any of those things, I promise you, we're gonna find in the next several weeks, David can relate to every one of those circumstances. And there's good evidence to suggest that when he struggled in that way, he had to remember, God, you determine my calling and you're in control of the timing. God, you made a promise to me. I know you're gonna take good care of me. I wish you'd hurry up, but I trust your timing. God determines our calling as men and women, as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, children and students, employers and employees. He determines the gifts he's given us, the career he wants us to travel down in our families. We can resist any one of those things, but with all those things, he determines the timing of how he wants it to play out. And I, I can't tell you for sure what was going through David's mind during this period of his life, but what we're gonna learn over the next several weeks was that there was plenty of chaos that kept him on the run. And no matter how high the highs were, and there were some highs, or no matter how low the lows got, and there were plenty of those, there is one thing that we learn about David time and time and time and time again. He always ran back to God. He always ran back to God. 
even when his job wasn't what, it, what, what, it was, what he wanted it to be or what he expected. Even when his family would later implode, even when he was dealing with the consequences of his own sin, even when nothing made sense, David would run back to God. And, and if there's anything that we can learn from his life, I think it's that. It's tempting to run and pursue and chase lots of things, but we need to run back to God. And what we're gonna see in this series is that God honored David's flawless, I'm sorry, flawed faithfulness in ways that he would never imagine. So here's, let me fast forward through David's story for you. Eventually David becomes king and he's the greatest king that Israel's ever known. And he has a son named Solomon who goes on to be the wisest and wealthiest king Israel had ever had. He had everything you could ever want but he starts to fall away from God, which causes the kingdom to split in two. And eventually the kingdom that is split in two just completely disintegrates. There's nothing. And a thousand years later, after Solomon and David had lived, Israel finds themselves in a mess. The nation's in shambles. They're living under Roman oppression. But God was good to David. He kept a promise because a thousand years after David lived, which is a long time, in his hometown of Bethlehem, peasants had a child named Jesus. And as it turns out, he is the one that God had promised to David all those years before. Now, David screwed his life up tremendously, and he could have never imagined what God wanted to do through that man, Jesus. And if you're not familiar with Jesus, we think he is a pretty big deal around here. We think he is exactly who he claims to be, that he's done exactly what he's claimed to do, and he's going to come and return to set everything right. David could have never imagined. What's interesting is David comes in at number 57 on the list for time. Guess who number one was? His great, 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 great grandson, who is the reason that we gather together today. And so here's why I share all that with you. I'm sure life is hard. Life's gonna be hard. Life will always be hard. Life is hard. There will be highs and lows, but we need to model. We need to follow David's example to run to God because he couldn't have imagined what he wanted to do. And so imagine what he wants to do in our lives if we learn to run to him. So here's how I wanna end. I want everybody to take a moment to stand. And I want you to think about what you're going through in life right now compared to David's story. Do you feel like a lost shepherd in a field, a forgotten shepherd in a field? Are you alone? Are you afraid? Are you working for a tyrant? Are you in a season of transition? Or are you just running through the everyday chaos of life? Picture the thing that's kind of driving you crazy right now. And what we're gonna do, we're gonna pray one of David's own prayers out loud together. It comes from Psalm 59. And when he wrote these words, he was on the run for his life. And I want you to look at these words. Let's pray these words. You are my strength. You, God, you are my fortress. My God, on whom I can rely.
whom I can rely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those words. We thank you that they were written by a man who was on the run for his life. We thank you for your faithfulness. There's no way that David could have ever imagined that a thousand years after he lived, whatever his life looked like, that you would keep a promise to him, but that promise is extended to us through your son, Jesus. And as great as David was, no one compares to Jesus. Would you teach us to run to you in our circumstances? Would you teach us to love your word that we can pray these prayers back to you? They've been prayed back to you for ages. Help us to enjoy them for what they are. And as we sing to you right now, would you help us to feel your presence and to know the power that comes from knowing you? Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.